Hi, everybody. Welcome to the final session of Beth Lita's special series on Shemitah. Um, we started with in-depth discussions in which we, in a way, suspended our disbelief. Torah describes an ideal system of Shemitah in which the land is allowed to rest fully. We no longer uh, exploit the land to eat. The land generously provides what it would provide anyway and we live on it freely, equitably. Laws, uh, relations of, of domination are abrogated, and in the Yovel, this is in, even further intensified in which all land returns to where it's supposed to be or who it's supposed to be settled by, and all relations of human exploitation and domination are ended when slaves are set free. It clearly anticipates Mashiach. But since it anticipates Mashiach, and I don't know if you look around, we're not exactly living in the Messianic age now, the question uh, we've approached, or we've addressed last week, and we will continue and kind of uh, emphasize this week, is how is the ideal vision of Shemitah translated into this very real world? Last week we looked at the Prosbul, which is a rabbinic legal mechanism that allows uh, debts to be assumed by the court. So then we saw the way in which that helped to mediate or moderate the kinds of potentially exploitative relationships that being in a credit or debt relationship can have. Um, you know, that the idea of Shemitah is supposed to in some way equalize us and to put it in the hands of the court, took it out of the hand of the, the debt collector and put it in the hand of the democratic representative of the Jewish people, namely the rabbinic courts. Um, with Heter, we're going to be looking at the Heter Mechira, which is in a way the most uh, potentially like legal loophole style uh, fake Shemitah observance of all, in which um, there is an allowance formulated by rabbis, most famously by Rav Cook, um, to allow fields, real estate parcels in the land of Israel to be sold to non-Jews such that that land then is no longer relevant when it comes to the laws of the sabbatical year. Now, if you were to translate that to a different legal loophole practice that a lot of us are going to be engaging in soon, what could you compare that to? Selling your chametz. Exactly, selling your chametz. There are other examples of that too. So it's just, we, you know, a Jew is not allowed to own chametz or benefit from chametz during, obviously, and consume chametz during uh, Pesach. So to solve that problem, we, you know, do a, a rigorous accounting of all of the leavened materials and all of the leavened food that's been baked into our dishes and like all the ways in which we own some kind of chametz stick stuff, and we sell it off, usually through a rabbi to a trusted non-Jew. But we know that like. It's got to come back, right? We're doing this because it's part of an arrangement, and we're expecting that the non-Jew is going to sell it back to us, right? If the non-Jew, you know, there's a famous story like, oh, you know, a big kibbutz in Israel sold their chametz to a Gentile neighbor, and then along comes Passover, and toot, toot, here he comes with a big trailer tractor, and he just takes <laughs> all the chametz because it's his. I mean, like, fair enough, right? We have, like, all, I think as anyone who maybe has, like, gambled on the stock market this past couple years of retail investing, right? Like, 
if you play the game, you gotta you gotta assume the risk. That's what that's what it means to um, speculate, right? To engage in stock markets, investments, and things like that. It would make no sense if it was guaranteed profit. Part of the point is that you're assuming some kind of risk. So that's the risk, right? Like if you sell it to the non-Jew, it's theirs, and they can take it. Similarly, I mean, you know, this is a lease, right? It's not like you're selling the land in perpetuity to somebody. You're giving them a one-year lease. But still, the point here is that you are letting the land go out of your control. Um, there are other examples of this um, that the Talmud details. One of them is like if you sell your animal to a non-Jew, then you can avoid the, the regulations around the firstborn. It's like a lot of things like, oh, yeah, so just like escape, you know, just like evade, wiggle around these rules and they won't apply to you. Again, like it really does ring a lot of bells of like Judaism as legalistic religion. But part of what we try to do in this class, though, is to show that all of these mechanisms, or at least the ones we're talking about, are not just technical, meaningless reductions of Torah to some kind of um, game, but rather are trying to achieve Torah's ends in changed conditions. In a time in which Jews have full possession of the land of Israel and, um, and thus a certain kind of autonomy, then Shemitah might have a little bit more of a chance to work out. But in a time in which we're in exile, the economy is not under our control, then, as we talked about last week, then you can see why the rabbis start to navigate and create things like the prose bull. Except here comes the issue, right? With the return of Jews to settle in the land of Israel, we have a situation now in which Jews are the legal, right, gnomic, uh, dominant force in the land. And because of that then, does that mean we have in a way zoomed backwards in time time machined back to the biblical, like the biblical laws should apply again, right? It's like that the rabbinic period in a way was a nice way station, but now we're back in ideal Torah time. It's an important question to ask. Okay, so Hatzir Mechira is this mechanism created by um, non, created by rabbis uh, to uh, allow, right, the facilitate, facilitated sale of land, Jewish-owned land to non-Jews. And once non-Jews own, own the land, then the laws of Shemitah don't apply, and now because of that, we have produce, you know, that there's agriculture happening in the land of Israel. People won't starve to death. Okay, so we know the reason why Heter Mechira, because if the land wasn't allowed to be worked for an entire year, people would starve to death, right? So we see the, the pressing social concern. Um, before we get into the text, so what are like the hinge points here, right? Like what are the pressure points? What do you ha what has to be true for this to work? And also, can you come up with like maybe, are, like, are you comfortable with this? Do you feel some resistance to this? What do you think, uh, what are just some first thoughts before we get into the actual text? Having lived in Israel, there really isn't much else. I mean, um, Haredim would buy from Arab villages. But, you know, when I lived in Israel in the 80s, so a lot of the produce came from um, hydroponic uh, of growing, which gets around it. Plus, it was in Gaza, which I don't think is Eretz Israel. Not um, biblically. We'll get to that. Yeah. Okay. Because I think it's the Plishti coast. Yeah, but, exactly. Um, yeah. yeah, we're going to look at Korea, that, which is the classic example of that. Right, but it's not like Canada. Greater Israel. 
Right. It's not Canada or the U.S. where you could just like buy stuff imported. Importing things into Israel is very, very expensive. And they don't import um, fresh vegetables or fruit because it's right, mostly there. But that could be like arranged, right? You could have like every seven years, you know, like food tariffs are are like are canceled. And like it's an import economy. But it, it really harms Israeli farmers. Not if you're not farming for that year. Right, and then for the other six years, you like you like ramp, <laughs> ramp up the tariffs. Right, right. right. The economy. And you and you charge that much more for fruit and vegetables to make yeah, up for people's the patriotic duty. You lose. You know, like do you know like yes you can buy is you know buy Israeli produce for six years and then yes you can don't do it for the other year. Right, buy Spanish or Italian. Right, maybe we just like theologically justify globalization. Right, ah, good. Now the you know the free flow of commerce have allowed us to keep the Torah. The, okay. the hydroponic was very, yeah, I thought, very clever. That's, that's a, a real, like, uh, Shabbos timer kind of solution, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, although the Shabbos timer issue comes up in the sense of what's called sfichin, which are, like, annual plants, but we'll get to that, too. Um, all right, so here's what we need, though, for this to work. I mean, so, yeah, so you also mentioned those, the charedim, some charedim, won't avail, so some people don't avail themselves of the hetermechira. And instead, what they do is they buy produce from non-Jews, right? They like there are non-Jews living in the land. They have ownership of parcels of land, but buy non-Jewish produce. And it's a really interesting question, right? Because like one of the things I want to navigate is by talking about shemitah. And this actually, I wore this T-shirt on purpose. This is a T-shirt for a food pantry I volunteer with called the People's Pantry. And the slogan is "Food is political, food is love." It's very sweet, but it's true. Shemitah shows us how political food is. Because when I, say, I, when I say political, what I mean is it involves the relations between communities and the way that power is negotiated through that. So if you can't buy Jewish produce during Shemitah and you don't hold by this kind of workaround, it necessitates, it's kind of like a Shabbos goy. It's a Shemitah goy, right? It, it's, it's, it necessitates you buying produce from non-Jewish villages, which then means implicitly that you need to maintain relations with those communities or else you'll die. Or you need that, you need, like, i.e. you are mutually imbricated. You are in some way, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, what's the thing like an animal, like the little fish eats the thing inside of the big fish symbiotic <laughs> symbiotic relationship right i think and i think i think you know like we people often look askance at the shabbos goy it's like oh it's like this technical workaround or is it actually a way in which torah is making sure we maintain neighborly relations not one uh you know one is think of the fact like even back in the middle ages when jews are getting like oppressed all over the place the Shabbos Goy was an available thing, which meant that there was some kind of way in which we're developing positive relations with non-Jews, and is that going to then increase our safety if something bad goes down? It at least raises the possibility that there's someone looking out for us, an ally, right? So similarly here, if you don't have this workaround, it requires you to have neighborly relations with non-Jewish communities. So here we're going to see how the Hetra in a way, smuggles in that relationality as well. So let's start looking at the text, because we're going to look at exactly these pressure points. Um, 
So we're not looking at the text for the Hetermechira because it's like it's very complicated stuff. We just know that Hetermechira is a bill of sale in which you lease the land for one year to uh, your Gentile purchaser. Okay, and that because it is owned by a Gentile, it is not the land is the fruits of the land are not uh, under the under the ambit within the ambit of the Shemitah law. But that actually requires certain things to be true. We're going to see how even that, it's all complications upon complications. So let's look at the first one. So let's look at Devarim 7.2. It says, It says, God will deliver them to you and defeat them. You must doom them to destruction. Dum, dum, dum. Grant them no terms and give them no quarter. Okay, so what is this verse referring to? Just in short, we're gonna to, like we're gonna to touch on some sensitive issues here. But in short, what is this verse referring to? Is this to the Canaanites who were around? Yeah, the Canaanites and the other six nations living in the land. Right. So this is on the border of the Jewish people about to enter the land of Israel as God is delivering the land into their hands and specifically saying the seven nations living in the land you must not give them any quarter. Okay, and the language it uses is lo, uh, lo sichonem. Okay, and the word ching means grace, do not be gracious with them. In the context, it refers to, like again, giving them quarter, right? Sparing, I mean, it's brutal stuff. But we're gonna see the language lo sichonem is similar enough to a different word, such that it's gonna actually have a more expansive application. So it says, Rashi says, you know, citing the Gemara, do not give them grace, i.e., don't give them quarter, like we saw. So here, what we're talking about is like intercommunal relations. It's, it is forbidden for a person, i.e., a Jew, to say, "Oh, how great is this goy?" Right? And we say goy. This is. I mean, here we're going to actually hit a lot of problematic terminology, and I don't just mean how like goy is a problematic term. It is, but I mean to say. Jews have never produced literature, maybe ever, since we've had written literature, in which we're doing so on our own terms. We've always had some kind of censor looking out over us. Um, if you see language like goy, nochri, avodat akum, akum, avodat elulim, avodat kochavim, all these terms, it's complicated who it's referring to. Sometimes it refers explicitly to certain communities, and then the censor schmeist it out. So it's actually like the question of who is it we're talking about when we say goy, which means Gentile, right? Non-Jewish person. When we say goy, it's unclear. And that's exactly kind of that ambiguity we're going to be playing with here. So it says, you're not allowed to say like, oh, look how great that goy is. Davaracher, or alternatively, it says, lo titain lahem don't grant them settlement in the land. Meaning what? What's forbidden according to the Torah? Right? This is a Torah verse. What's forbidden according to the Gemara and Avodah Zarah? Well, let's look at the Gemara. It says, the verse says, Lo sechonim, lo titain lehem chaniyah. Do not give them encampment. Do not let them settle. Bakarka, on the land. Hi, Ah, it seems like it would only mean don't be gracious with them. Then should say 
shouldn't just say, don't be gracious with them. It says, lo sichonim without a vav. Why? My lo sichonim without a vav, shmamina tarti. It means two things. Right, the fact that it's what's called um, deficito, it's missing that vav, it means it's not just tichonim, like be gracious, it means it also means uh, machane, right, which means encampment. Don't give them a gift freely. Like, don't like go out of your way to be nice, effectively. No, it means all three of these things. Because it has this most expansive, i.e., like the verse has no, no yud, no vav, which means it can be read any of these ways. Right? Because Hebrew is a language of consonants and the vowels are in a way arbitrary right i could i could point this whatever way i want it could be lo sechonem it could be lo sechinem it could be lo sechonem right it can mean all three of these things that's what the rabbi says it means three things do not be gracious with them like don't go out of your way do not give them a gift freely there's even like we'll see regulations around who you're allowed to give gifts to I mean, think about also gift in like the anthropological sense, like Marcel Mose, right? To give a gift to someone or to a community is to form some kind of relationship with it. So Torah here is wary, even proscribing, right? Forbidding, having relate, like proactively making relationships with the non-Jewish communities. And then last but not least, do not allow them settlement. What does that mean though? I mean, obviously, you know, people are going to live where they're going to live. So what then is the Torah forbidding? When it says do not allow them settlement, meaning what? Don't do what? You can't sell them land. You cannot sell them land. Wait a second. What, yeah. what do you do with Hetcher Mechira? But isn't there a difference? Because these are the heathens around. Okay, good. So the question is... Yeah. Avodazara, and the people who are surrounding and, and surrounding Jewish communities are mostly Arab Muslims and Islam is a monotheistic religion. And the okay, same so, so again, we're getting back to this question: How strictly constructionist is this verse? Is it contextual? Is it only referring to the seven nations who are wicked, needed to be uh, eliminated? Is it referring to? seven nations paradigmatically but applying to all idolaters and then if that's the case what about non-idolatrous non-jews are they within the ambit of this law or not so those are exactly the questions we're going to be engaging with now okay so let's go to gittin gittin it's here's the mishnah it says amocher sadehu legoy but again when it says goy it we don't like we need to well actually you know, maybe i should have done this i should have gone back to the um to the, um, what's the earliest manuscript of the Mishnah we have? I forget. There's a, there's a pretty good, there's a very good manuscript of the Mishnah we have. This is the printed one, and, you know, anything printed is going to be through the censor, right? So, um, when it says, anyone who sells their field to a goy, again, does that mean idolater? Does that mean any non-Jew? Unclear. Christian? You know, some manuscripts actually have it, like, specifically Christians. Lokeach humevi mimenu bikurim. So if you sell your field to a to a non-Jew, let's just say, to a goy, let's just say that, then um, you must then buy the first fruits from them for the sake of tikkun olam. Why? 
because it seems to imply if you sell your field to a non-Jew, the mitzvah of Bikurim still applies, right? The first fruits still need to be offered to God around Shavuos, but they're not going to do it. They don't care. <laughs> they don't. That's not. They don't. They don't observe the Torah. So you, as the former owner of the land, need to actually go. Sacri you know, like give away your money, sell, uh, buy the first fruits, or maybe you negotiated terms if you sold your land to them to make sure that you got the first fruits, and then bring them to the temple. Because the it seems like you know, the, like the brisker terms is the mitzvah on the person, on the gavra, or is it on the karka, or is it on the land? It seems like it's on the land. The land itself is obligated for bikurim, and the land, even if you sell it to a non-Jew seems to not be changed in its legal status. We'll get to that too. All right, so Rashi says, for the sake of the sustainability of the world, it's the point of it's consequentialist, right? The point is not just the rule, it's also the effect of the rule. And I hate this term, but it shouldn't be normalized. That's a, a good translation of regular. You shouldn't become inured. You shouldn't regularly, habitually do this. You shouldn't become, let it be normalized to sell land in Israel to, ah, he says, Oved Kochavim. That means idolater. So is it Goy Bichlal, generally non-Gentile? Or is it specifically idolater? Again, the language is ambiguous. It's, it's confusing, even. Vigam im machar, and even if you did sell the land to them, yatriach lachzor achrev liftos, then you need to strive after redeeming it from them, i.e. buying it back. If, in other words, any sale to a goy or, a, or an idolater of land in Eretz Yisrael should never, ever be accepted. It should always, in some ways, be ad hoc, Right, something you do because you are forced to, like you're, you 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 have to sell it to get out of a, a, a sticky situation or something. Right, you it's your last terms of resort, and if you do do it, you need to make it number one priority to bring the land back under your control, in some way. Okay, so we see that the, there's tension here. Right, there's there's a tension around letting this, uh, letting this be sold. Um, so Rabba says, "Af is back to the Gemara." Says, kinyan kia mide meiser." So it says, even though selling land to a non-Jew does not remove it from being obligated in tithing. So even if you sell the land to a non-Jew, even though they won't, they're not obligated to tithe it. The land needs to be tithed. I mean, again, think about this not just as a technical set of rules, but think about the effect of them. What kind of social relations do these cause? Do these, like, do these uh, implicate? Right, so if Rashi said above, I mean, the Mishnah said, if you sell land to a non-Jew, you need to make sure to buy back the Bikurim. And here, Rabbah is saying, if you sell land to a non-Jew, it is still obligated in Miser, even though they're not going to do it. So you need to take care of it. Meaning what? It's not, I mean, Rashi's saying, don't let, like, don't let this be normalized, right? No normalizing this. But it's not just that as like a principle. In material reality, if you still need to take care of the first fruits and the tithes and the truma, da-da-da-da-da, then have you really lost control of the land? 
Or is every sale of your land to a non-Jew going in some way to be, you're still going to be like checking up on it, you're still maintaining some kind of relationship to it, and also to them? Right? It's not, you're not renting it, you sold it. But you haven't ceded control over it. Because your obligations to it, and through it to God, are still active. Do we see that? Like, it's not clear because, like, it's not, the, the rule isn't thou shalt worry yourself over it. That's thinking of laws too formally. But think about what the results of these laws are. Yes, you, you're not supposed to sell your land to a non-Jew, but if you do, you're still obligated to take care of the mitzvahs associated with it, means you never let it go. Okay, so in some way, even though you've sold the land, in some way, there's some kind of facilitated relationship with it. Okay? Um, so, so it says, so if you sell land to a non-Jew, it still needs to be tithed. But it says, but, but a non-Jew has full control in terms of what they want to do with it. They're allowed to pave it, dig in it, um, dig wells in it, etc., etc. Since it says, the heavens the heavens of God, but the earth was given to human beings. We're allowed to farm the land. That's what we're allowed to do. So selling the land to a non-Jew, or an idolater, again, depending, means that they're allowed to do, you know, they're allowed to do, uh, what's it called? Um, sheep would seem. Right? They can do landscaping with it. They can, you know, they can turn it to their, what they want to do with it. But, when it comes to the religious obligations, they are still active. Um, so Rabbi Elazar says, even though if a non-Jew buys land in Eretz Yisrael, the sale obtains, like the sale goes through, um, he says it does actually, so Rabbah above said, if you sell land to non-Jew, the sale goes through, but the land is still obligated in tithing. But Rabbi Elazar says that if you sell land to a non-Jew, it's not just that the land sale goes through. He disagrees with Rabbah, and he says that, no, there's no more miser anymore. So, to Rabbah, the mitzvah of tithing, right, the religious commandments about the sanctity of the land, do not depend on ownership. It depends on the land. It's objective. It's just the land. Whoever owns the land, it doesn't matter. The land needs to produce uh, tithes in this way, or first fruits, etc. But to Rebbe Elazar, what activates the mitzvah of tithing and of first fruits, etc.? Ownership. It needs to be a Jewish ownership of the land for those mitzvahs to obtain. Okay, so we have two different models here. Okay? One model is in which sale of the land is ad hoc. This is Rabbah, right? And because of that, we still have sustained obligations to it, which keep us involved with the land. But to Rebbe Elazar, but to Rebbe Elazar, once the sale goes through and you don't own the land anymore, that means also all of the commandments having to do with the land are also canceled out because it's not on the land, it's on you. All right, the mitzvah's on you. The land, in a way, is what... The land activates the mitzvah. It's not that you activate it. Okay. So we see the two different models here. One is more, let's say, a robust belief in this, the ability to sell. So even though, you know, the rabbinic law concedes the point that even though you're not supposed to allow them to settle, you are, it seems like, 
the Mishnah and the Talmud recognize and accept, maybe not 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 um, ideally, but you know as a compromise, accept that you're going to have to sell land to uh, non-Jews at some point. But the question is how what, how far is that allowed to go? Rabba thinks that we maintain some kind of intrinsic connection to the land. The land itself is obligated in these mitzvahs, and we need to make sure that they get accomplished. Whereas for Rabbi Elazar, he thinks that it's human settlement, in effect, that um, that activates those mitzvahs. And once the human side of the equation changes, i.e., you sell the land off, then the mitzvahs don't apply anymore. Okay. So which of these models, in a way, Rabba or Rabbi Elazar, do you think we need? For a heteromachira to work, we need it to be dependent on who owns the land and not on the land itself. Right. Otherwise, all these mitzvahs then, right? So Otherwise, for you to believe, so, yeah, right. For you to believe that heteromachira can can work, it needs to be Rebbe Elazar. Right? Right. It needs to be that Jewish ownership is the uh, is the, the bottom line condition. Okay. But I want to be clear, though, even like the Rabba model is interesting. And I think in some ways, the question in a way is, how can we live in a Rebbe Elazar world, but still have Rabba's values? I want to say, like, I think that's part of what the complexity around this question gets us to. Okay. So Rashi says, She'en Kenyan. Um, he says, Im kana karka, If an idolater buys land in Eretz Yisrael, Right, he says, and this is him explaining Rabbah. Rabbah says that selling the land means that the holiness of the land is not eliminated. Shalotis chayev meiser, right? So that the so that so that it wouldn't be any more obligated in tithing. And if you buy fruit from a non-Jew then you need to tithe them. Okay, so for Rabba's model, um, Rashi makes it a little bit more complicated. So we thought that, ah, Rabba says, since the land is still obligated, thus the fruit needs to be tithed. But here Rashi's saying, it's not on the, it's, Rabbi Elazar says it's about ownership. But Rashi is reading Rabbah as saying, it's not about ownership, it's about relationship. That It's not that you need to basically like sneak into their uh, field and, and tithe their food. But rather, if you buy food from a non-Jewish farmer, you are obligated to tithe it. So now the question is on the produce and not on the land. So the question now is, do the mitzvahs about Shemitah do they apply to the land or to the produce? Okay, that's up in the air, right? So that so even in Rabba's model in this Rashi commentary, I think there's a little bit of room now to maneuver and to negotiate more of the flexibility when it comes to Shemitah. All right, so I want to look at the Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch says. This is from Yoradea, which is like a set of, it's like technical rabbinic law, right? The ritual law of the Jewish people. Here it describes the laws about joint ownership of land. If you own a parcel of land in like an LLP, I guess, with a non-Jew. And the question is, um, 
what's the status of the land? So we see the, I'm, I'm going to say it outside, it says that if you jointly own land with a non-Jew in Israel proper, then you, the, non, the Jew, owe tithes for the entirety of the land, not just you were part of it. Even if in your bill of ownership, you have divvied up the land. This part is mine, this part is yours. This part is mine, this part of yours. It says, even if that's the case, you, the Jew, the Jewish partner, owes God for the entirety of it that you jointly own. Not just your part of it, the, entire, the entirety of it. But, says the Shulchan Aruch, if you own land jointly with a non-Jew in Syria, i.e. greater Israel, not classic Israel, right, like New Coke, Pepsi 2 or whatever, right? If you own land in with a non-Jew in Syria, then you only owe tithes on your part of the land because those tithes are only owed to God rabbinically, not biblically. So Israel proper, according to Torah law, you the land needs to be tithed. But rabbinically speaking, tithes apply to greater Israel only on you, not on the land. Okay? Thus, the halacha concludes that, he says though, but it seems to me, which is a very uncommon phrasing in the Shulchan because usually it's very like, I'm just giving you the black letter law. He says, v'nir ali, it seems to me. So he's really sticking his neck out a little bit. Deha'itna, nowadays, after the destruction of the temple, that's what he means by nowadays, even in Israel proper, tithing is only obligated according to rabbinic law. So if that's the case, there's no difference between Syria and Israel anymore because they're both only rabbinically obligated in tithing. And thus, if you jointly own land with a non-Jew, even in Israel proper, you only owe on your part of it. So whose side did Shulchan Aruch fall on? Rabbah or Rebbe Elazar? We're in Rebbe Elazar world because it depends on who owns it. Except, I want to say it's a more complex model of it that kind of smuggles in Rashi's Rabbah. Because the point of it is about relationship. If you jointly own land, then you own it. You own all of it, in a way, right? You are liable for 50% of risk when it comes to it, but you can... You have rights over the entirety of it, it legally speaking. It depends on your arrangement. But if you and non-Jew jointly own a parcel of land, let's say it's from Spadina to Blue, uh, you know, Spadina and Bloor to whatever, I, I don't want to like, whatever. You own a parcel of land in, uh, in, in, in Israel. It's not that you own part A and they own part B. You jointly own A and B together. That's what a joint ownership means. So if it is ownership-based, then you would have to pay the tithes on it all. But I think what we're dealing with here is now it's not just about ownership. It's about active engagement. And since you are only actively engaged with the part of the land that's been parceled out to you, thus it allows you then to 
section off part of land that was yours or is yours and allow it to be controlled by someone else. That opens up the possibility of, be, of doing that intentionally, of going into business, as it were, with your non-Jewish neighbor to parcel off part of your land for a certain amount of time in which maybe you don't even necessarily need to get rid of it entirely. You can just um, go into partnership with them. Um, so let's go back to this do not allow them to settle question. So, I'm mean, sorry, the, the reason I wanted to put the, the Shulchan Aruch after the Rashi is that what we have is two different questions in terms of the whether the holiness of the land is abrogated by sale or not. The question is either, you could say, ah, by selling it off to an Anjou, the land is no longer as holy. Or you could say, the, the nature of the holiness of the land is different now, right, because we're in a post-exilic time period. But both of these have weak points. For this one, it requires, A, a certain kind of view of Jewish and non-Jewish relations, which is maybe problematic, but B, also, if we have the rule that you're not supposed to sell your land to a non-Jew, then this whole thing is based on something you're not supposed to be doing. And then if we're saying that the land is only rabbinically holy nowadays, and because of that it gives us a little more room, and maybe Shemitah doesn't even apply anymore, which is the position of Ravid and the Me'iri, right? That, it, that Shemitah doesn't even apply anymore. And anyone who does Shemitah says the Ravid and the Me'iri. It's Midas Chassidus. It's because you're being pious, but there's no obligation to do it anymore, right? So if that's the case, a, you know, that requires a certain kind of theological claim, right, that maybe says holiness is something that's historically, like it's about time, it's not about space, so maybe the land of Israel isn't holy anymore. That's a strong claim. Or, it's if it's historically based, then what does it mean if we've re-entered and resettled the land? Is, would, would, um, would the Shulchan Aruch's Ha'idna no longer apply? Would you say, ah, it isn't nowadays anymore, it's after nowadays. Now that the Jews are back in the land of Israel and have, have control over it, then maybe actually the biblical laws do apply. Right? So we see this question is immensely complicated. And it, it's a complex question that requires you asking, like, what are you putting your weight, like, how are you weighting this question? Right? It's not, if you just treat everything like a technical game, which I think a lot, uh, we really run the risk of doing when we just see these things as, as, as loopholes, we miss the ways in which all of these legal questions are, are also philosophical questions, or theological questions, or state questions of values. The question is, what do, in this multivariable equation, this quadratic equation of life, right, what are the parts of it that are, that present themselves to us as most compelling and most important? What are the things that we value the most? Is it land? Is it people? Right? Is it um, rights of property, right? Freedom. All these things are up in the air. Okay. So here comes the Tosfos. The Tosfos commenting on Avodah which we saw before, on this question of lo sichonim, do not allow them to settle, or do be gracious with them. So here comes this question. It says, lo sitim lehem chaniya bakarka. Don't allow them to settle in the land. But darish nam mehai kra, besam shalolitim lehem chen. But the Gemara also says, no, you shouldn't be nice to them, right? That you shouldn't give them a gift freely. Nistama de Milti says, but if you just like read it, you know, like a normal person, it seems to apply to every idolater, right? Everyone who worships the, 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 uh, the stars. 
And it seems in the Talmud it says that it only, but, but if you look at the text, or if you look at the actual context, as Lauren pointed out, it's not just Stom Gentiles or even Stom idolaters. It's specifically the seven nations um, of the land, right? And, and then he quotes the verse that proves it. It says, He says, specifically, it has to do only with the seven nations. That all the other nations, you are, all, because, he says, it has to be this, because the verse says um, that God will dispossess these great, these, these great nations from before you, the Hittites, etc. Don't make any covenants with them. Don't make a deal with them. Don't make agreements with them, a treaty. And don't allow them to settle. And then it says also, and don't intermarry with them. It says this can only apply to the seven nations. Why? Because conversion exists. All of the other Gentiles are allowed to convert into the Jewish people and join the community. I mean, even with um, like with with um, with D with David Melech, right? Like famously from Rus, comes from one of the seven nations. But only, right, but only from her mother's side, not from her father's side, and because of that, the rabbis say it's okay. Point is, all of the non-seven nations, Gentiles, you are allowed to make agreements with, i.e. to intermarry with. So then, maybe you can sell the land off to a non-Jew who's not one of the seven nations. I mean, the seven nations aren't around anymore. You know, like they're gone. Pish, pish push. He says, but but giving gifts and being gracious and allowing settlement. There's no reason, he says, to distinguish between those three, when it comes to those three prohibitions, to differentiate between the seven nations and other Gentiles. He says that applies to all of it. It says the Tosfus. The Tosfus says, there's no reason to restrict it strictly to the seven nations because that part of the verse doesn't seem to apply in that case. Miukashia, but he says, ah, but there's a problem here. That striking an agreement we've seen with King Solomon, in which he makes an agreement with Hiram Melech Tzur. Okay, so it seems like you can make treaties with non-seven nations armies <laughs> with the with the with, with the with the community of other gentile peoples that aren't the seven nations right and then similar later on in joshua or earlier in joshua it says right it says but perhaps you live amongst us how can we not make a pact with you to the gibeonites the gibeonites though are not part of the seven nations so it seems that in torah verse we have a clear proof that you are allowed to make proactive, positive relations with non-Jews, but not with the seven nations. But the question then comes back to, but how far does that extend? Can, you can make political arrangements, it seems, but are you still allowed to be even more proactive? Can you be nice? Can you give gifts? Can you sell land, i.e. to not just make an arrangement with them, Right, good fences make good neighbors. I can make a treaty with the Gibeonites, but they're over there and I'm over here. But to sell land to them is to say, ah, I want to intermingle with you. And that's different.
So we see that the questions of Shemitah, in terms of, or really the question about owner, like about the whole, the possession and the dispossession of the land, and what that means, isn't just about these technical rules. It's about how it is that we are allowed to make relations with other with communities. Yes, you can maybe have proactive, like positive relations with communities, but are you allowed to proactively bring them in? Or do you need to make sure that there's a bright line between you? And to sell land, you know, your land to another, to a member of a different community means now that you are living in a mixed community. You know, maybe that seems like kind of obvious to us nowadays living in the democratic West. But even think of Toronto, right? It is a city of neighborhoods. You still have these pockets like Corso Italia, Little Italy, other non-Italian communities, Chinatown, Koreatown, right? Where we have these pockets of these ethnic enclaves that still exist. Um, um, ja uh, Little Jamaica, right? At Eglinton West. And we have all these, like, these pockets of ethnic enclaves that exist. There's something special about that. And even today, right, in the democratic slash capitalist West, there's a lot of anxiety about mixing communities. How so? With issues around gentrification, right? This is using purchase power to buy parcels of land in a way that changes the makeup or the, even maybe the sacredness of that community, right? Because think about it. Something that Shemitah and also this, let's say this, community-based anxiety about land sale is that it has a resistance to the notion that land is something that can, be, that can and should be commodified. And instead, the preference is that land and communities are supposed to exist together. Now, in a way, like, you know, you could say like that kind of turns into this kind of maybe racial nationalism, but like, I, I'm, I'm naming that. I don't think you need to go there, but that's possible too, right? It's like, oh, this land is for this people and that land's for that people. Um, which is also like a potential way that certain politics around indigeneity can go too, right? But here, I think also an issue is, is, is about trying to have a non-commodity-based relationship to land. So Heter Mechira is, in, in its very basis, a sincere compromise with Shemitah because the notion is that you are doing exactly what Yovel is trying to keep us from doing, selling off the land. Right? And what is that again? How does that then transform your relationship to the land if now it's become a commodity which needs to be offloaded onto somebody else? To now see the land as a burden, right? Not as a privilege. It's the not not eating bread so you don't say Birkata Mazon, but for land ownership. Right? So I think we have this balance. That means pros bull too. Right? We have this balance of what happens when Torah becomes too hard. Does do the rabbis ease off the valve a little bit so that Torah is something that's more livable. And, that, and to be able to make Torah more livable, it also means you need to, in some way, divest or dis, uh, make it less intense, right? And one of the ways to do that, then, is to moderate how sacrally we relate to the land, whether you say it's not as sacred anymore because of the exile, or you say that there is, that it's the that question is like, who are the right kind of people you're allowed to sell it to? Who are the ones who are the in-group versus the ones not in the in-group, right? So 
One is to turn down the volume on the land. The other one is to turn up the volume on the people. Like, oh, if I sell to this person but not to that person, maybe that's okay because it's not as risky. And let's look at exactly that issue, right? So the tour, which is the basis for what eventually becomes the Shulchan Aruch, rules this way. It says, and, and this is in the Choshen Mishpat, which is like the, the aspect of the tour about civil law and right, commercial law. It says, You're not allowed to give a free gift to an idolater. And specifically, I want to say idolater here because that's going to become very important. But you are allowed to give a gift. We saw giving a gift, right, to be gracious with, to be nice to, and selling land are all related to each other. So when it says you're allowed to give a gift, it means you are allowed to sell land to to a resident alien. Now, what is a ger tosh, toshav? Now, it can't be a Jew, because if you've converted, you're a Jew. It needs to, it has to refer to the biblical version of a ger toshav, a non-Jew living under Jewish auspices. So you aren't Jewish, but you are living as a member of the community. So let's go back to that question we were talking about before. Okay, it's okay to have relations with neighbors, even positive relations with neighbors, to make a treaty agreement with the Gibeonites, with Hiram Melech Tzur. But I don't want them here, right? NIMBY, not in my backyard. I don't want these Oved Kochavim in my backyard. But here what we have is somebody who's not quite a Jew, but living in your backyard, right? Living in your community, a member of your community, paying taxes supporting the synagogue, right? We have to think of Judaism here not just as a private affair like we do in the capitalist West, right? Which religion is a private thing, but a public matter. Think of it more like the Middle Ages in which the Jewish, like the Jewish Federation, the UJA, like collected taxes, had, you know, like hired the rabbis, did upkeep for the synagogues but as public buildings. Right, public funds ran welfare, right? Gemach, gemilas chasadim. You have to think. I mean, Torah's vision of Judaism is not a matter of piety, but a matter of politics. It is a matter of politics, right? How you organize your community, how resources are distributed, and how society should be organized according to God's values. Right, and the way in which we're able to control that, right, is, I think, a question. And, and settling in the land of Israel, again, has opened that question in some very interesting ways. Okay, so, you are not allowed to sell, or to, to sell land or give a gift to an idolater, but you are allowed to be gracious with, pro, positively, proactively engage with a gertoshav, a non-Jew living under Jewish auspices. The Beis Yosef, who wrote the Shulchan Aruch, right? Yosef Karo. So this is the commentary he wrote on the tour, which is much more complex and much more, much less black letter law. It's, it is a really erudite and thorough, rigorous commentary. Here's what he writes. He says, Mishum Rabbeinu Asur Litain Matanas Chinam Lovei Kochavim. He says, because Rabbeinu, the tour, said it's forbidden to give a gift, i.e. to be proactive with an idolater, lav la'apuke Ishmael, elo la'apuke ger toshav. He says, using the language of idolater, 
He's saying it doesn't exclude um, Muslims, but it does exclude a Gertoshav. Why? Because a Gertoshav, this is like um, the Chabad, contemporary Chabad thing of like of Noahides. A Gertoshav has specifically, they haven't converted to Judaism, but it's like just under converting to Judaism. They've accepted for themselves the seven Noahide commandments, which are universally um, required of every single human being. But they have like, they have like, what well, I am not a Jew, but I am a non-Jew under Torah law. And I observe the seven things that Torah requires of me. Okay? So, but Muslims, according to Yosef Karo, don't quite reach that benchmark. Why? Well, it seems like because they're not under Jewish auspices. Right? And Noahide, in a way, their identity is Jewish. It's just that they're not Jewish. Right? Who they are is determined by Judaism. I'm a Noahide. I'm a Gertoshav. But Muslims have their, own, their, own, their whole other religion. Here comes the Bach. It's a comment, another commentary on the tour who writes this. He says, um, he says, quoting again, it's a, you're forbidden to be proactively positive with a, an idolater. And the Beis Yosef says it does, I mean, it seems like it's actually corrupted here. The point is it says it excludes, like you are allowed to be proactive with Gertosha because of the seven missiles. And not just that, but you are, actually I forgot to say this, it's a commandment to support them. You are, e you are equally obligated to support a Jew as you are to a Gertosha. They deserve your support, they need your support, and you're obligated to provide your support as much as you are able. He says, but according to his words, it is hard for me, says the Bach, to understand why that doesn't apply to Muslims too. And he doesn't explain why, but I think the answer is pretty clear because he's focusing on the fact that it is, um, the fact that it is, um, it's supposed to be excluding idolaters from having positively proactive relations. Well, Muslims, as Lauren said earlier in the conversation, but I didn't want to give it away, are the, they're, they're, they're even more monotheistic than we are, right? They're super monotheistic. They're super, super monotheistic, right? So if the issue is that we're talking, so the, Yose the base Yosef says, it's not just about, let's say confessional similarity. It's not just about the fact that we have similar religions. Saying Gertoshav is literally a member of the Jewish community, but it's just that they're not Jewish. So for him, it's political in the sense that you have to be a member of the community. It's just under a different kind of set of terms. But for the Bach, he's saying, no, it's actually a religious definition and it has to do with God more than it has to do with, with politics. The question isn't, are you um, under the auspices of the Jewish community, in as much as, are you an ally of the Jews because you too believe in the one God? So if the Bach wants to expand it, I mean, he would agree, obviously Gertoshav, sure, fine, but also a monotheist, i.e. a Muslim. Now, you can read the Bach strictly and say he only means Muslims. He does not mean Christians because Christians, um, they're, the, the question of whether they're monotheistic is a lot more complicated, right? Especially Catholics. Or you could say, like the Meiri does in his commentary elsewhere, that, in a way, other monotheists aren't even really considered non-Jews at all. They're not Jews, but they're not idolaters, 
right? So they are more like anyone is more like a Ger Toshav if they are down with the, the cause of one god. Okay, so I just want to sum up for a minute. So there's a few different hinge points that we've, we've marked on. First one we talked about was the land itself, right? But the question of whether, what the status of the land is, that perhaps in the time period we're living now, we have a little bit more latitude with the land because it, its status has changed after the exile. But then we raise the question, well, is that still the case if in the modern state of Israel, Jews have resettled the land? Are we back in quasi-biblical status now? Or was that really a benchmark and once you go, you know, you can't go back? Okay, so are, are we living in the post-biblical era or are we living in a new era, which is kind of re-biblicized? Re okay, and then the other question of it is the human question. If you say that there is some room to sell to a non-Jew, even according to, let's say, Torah law, how, what's the extent of that sale? If the sale goes through, what does that mean for the holiness of the land? And also, is there maybe selling the land supposed to be not just, is it an, always an ad hoc thing, or in a way, is it facilitating forming positive relations with certain kinds of non-Jews that we see an affiliation with, or even affinity with? Maybe a Ger Toshav, because they don't need to observe the, the mitzvah of Shemitah, right? So you can sell it to a Ger Toshav, maybe. Or, even according to the Bach, and other rabbis agree with him, but he's the classic source for this. Or you could sell it to other monotheists. And there are plenty of Muslims living in Israel. So maybe Shemitah, the fact that Torah might give an out for you to be able to not have to worry about this restriction when it comes to the produce in the land, is maybe in some way implicitly incentivizing developing positive neighborly relations with other monotheistic communities in the land. So maybe in a way, living exilically in the land keeps there from being, let's say, an uncritical or a credulous relationship to power that perhaps certain models of what it means to be in the land of Israel might promote. I wonder if, right, if Shemitah functioned normally, right, like or the way it was supposed to, then you could say, fine, listen, the exile is over. But in some ways, it keeps, I think, us from, be, from, from realizing that history is over. That there's room for these negotiations because we're living in non-ideal circumstances keeps reminding us, and you know that the lessons we've learned from exile about what it means to live amid, amongst other people still apply, facilitated by how we relate to the land. Okay, so I want to look at this um, this halach from the Rambam. <laughs> Here's what he says. He says, Akum shekona karka Yisrael. If an idolater purchased land in, in Israel, uzra'a, and plants in it, bashvis perusa mutarin. On Shemitah, 
the fruit is allowed. Okay, so Rambam seems to have... Now, this is a question, right? Saying, if a non-Jew, uh, an idolater, buys land in Israel, and that's every question from when you can sell it, but if the sale goes through, and a non-Jew buys land in Israel, the fruit is allowed during Shemitah. Why? Because Sefichin, i.e., plants that were planted before Shemitah, but then sprout again, were only forbidden so that it would prevent people from breaking the rules. So anything that sprouts during Shemitah is allowed because the non-Jew is not obligated to observe Shemitah. So it's okay. Okay, so here what we have is, in a way, a recognition of the, the way that the land functions, not just as what's been put into it, but also as through active engagement. You are no longer actively engaged with the land. So even the results of what you had planted when it was still yours, you're actually allowed to benefit from them because it's facilitated through this transfer of ownership. But here comes the swing. He says, Idolaters are not obligated to observe Shemitah such that the issues around it would be, um, would be applied. So, I took us on like a long journey. But this, like, Rambam is effectively, like, the real justification for those who do think Heter Mechira is allowed. But again, to allow Heter Mechira, you need to not just say that something can happen, but that it should be incentivized and allowed for. But I think one of the things I've been trying to show is that it's not just about, let's say, capitulating to circumstances. I think these things might be already baked in. Because Heter Mechira, i.e., partnership with non-Jews to allow food to circulate to those who need it is not dissimilar from what Shemitah was supposed to accomplish in the first place. And that's how we had reframed Prosbul. Right? The Prosbul was about, not about canceling the cancellation of debts, but rather, Shemitah was supposed to make sure that there was capital available for people so they wouldn't get bogged down in credit relationships and debt relationships. Well, if the whole system of the credit economy broke down, then nobody would have money anymore who needed it. The poor would not have available cash when they needed it to, 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 to borrow on credit. And that would mean that the poor would be disproportionately punished. Now, obviously, that's the opposite of what Shemitah wanted, so Prozbul was crafted such that the ultimate real goal of Shemitah would be accomplished, that capital would be available for people who need it, especially the poor. And here's the same point when it comes to food. Shemitah is about making sure that every single person is able to have food, whether they own it or not, whether they own land or not. Right? It is a balancing out between the landowning class and the non-landowning class. We talked about this when we talked about Shemitah as a rewilding of the earth and a rewilding of the human. Right, That you are a, a scavenger, a harvester. Right, You are gathering up the food. It's a hunter-gatherer economy. Right, You are gathering up whatever food is available. You're no longer planting it, which then means that you need to own it, but rather it is the land and it is available to everybody and what it produces, it produces. Similarly here, 
we have a weakening of ownership ties because if you follow the Hetermechira, you need to sell your land off, which means that you need to, in some way, see yourself as being in a partnership with your neighbors in owning it. It's not just yours anymore. And not just that, but also the reason you're doing that is so that it is the land is purposed for the needs of others. A Rashi we saw, I, I skipped by before says, L'chol tzorcheihem. It says, the sale is for all of their needs. All of their needs. That the land is about providing for people, not about being owned and exploited. So Heter Mechira is about using the, abil the available opportunities we have to make sure that the land can provide. Now, in a perfect world, we would, do, we would follow it the right way, in which all ownership ties are suspended for a year and people are able to go get the food they need. You know, in some ways I wonder, actually, if it could work, but the issue isn't, in a way, as much agron agronomy as it is the economy. Right? What it really would require is people who are, whose wealth is tied up in ownership having to lose a year's worth of rent or a year's worth of, uh, of profits. And no one can allow for that. So the issue, again, you know, really might be more about ownership more than it's actually about production. It's interesting. I'm not convinced that's true, but I just want to raise that as a possibility. Um, but Hetzer Mechira, like Prozbul, is not about canceling Shemitah or ignoring Shemitah, or even I would say weakening Shemitah, is a negotiation with Shemitah to ensure that its real goals are still able to be achieved, that people who need food are able to get it, and that people's relations, ties of ownership to the land are weakened and made more complex and more horizontalized, more egalitarian, because now all ownership of land in Israel requires you to sell it to a non-Jew if you follow Heter Mechira. Or you give it up the land for a year. You don't work it. Right? That's if you're like, you're really stark about it. So they like, so some people observe Shemitah for real, right? They like, do not use the land. And other people, if they do Heter Mechira, a negotiated Shemitah, it still, it requires them to weaken their ties of ownership and instead engage in partnership and cooperative owner, uh, um, cooperative ownership with your neighbors. So all of these things, in some way, flatten hierarchical relations because your the ownership that gives you power over others or privilege over others is now moderated. Rambam, earlier in his Laws of Shemitah, says, "Misha Rabu Anasim." He says, when oppressors, extorters, right, people who limit our freedom, expanded, right, in Israel, and the kings of the idolaters, enlist, like required Jews, like uh, drafted Jews into their armies, effectively, right? Like, think of like the pogroms. Think of the czar, right, drafting Jews into the czarist army. Okay. I mean, this Rambam's talking about before that, obviously, Middle Ages. But he says he tirul It was permitted in those times of 
extortion, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, of um, coercion, to plant and harvest during Shviz. Devarim shetzrichim lahem la'avdei ha'melech bilvad. But only, you were only allowed to produce that which the servants of the king needed. V'chein. Me, it says v'chein, right? That's historical. We have a precedent in history. If it was a time of coercive enlistment into Gentile military campaigns, you were allowed to be pressed into agricultural labor, but only such that it would actually do accomplish what you needed to accomplish because of your coercion. He says v'chein. And similarly, and somebody else, he says, this is a precedent. Anyone who is coerced into working on the seventh year, anyone who is coerced into working during the sabbatical year for free, i.e., you are press ganged into labor, you are allowed to be doing it. Now, why is it that I included this? Because I think what we're talking about with the Hetar Mechira is a situation in which everybody is a noose, in a way. We are all, all of our, you know, it is, we talk about Shemitah as the ideal. We live in the real world. We always have these contingencies and impinging circumstances, which limit what is possible. So, selling off the land to your non-Jewish neighbor means that you are, in a way, chinam. You are giving up. Remember, are you allowed to sell something bechinam, freely? Lo sechonem. Do not be gracious with them. Do not give them a gift freely. Are you allowed to sell bechinam, right? Are you allowed to sell off your land such that you are not gaining the profits for it anymore? I mean, it seems like the question is, you could give it away for free, or you lease it away for free, so that someone runs it for you, and they get to keep the profits. They're also responsible for the maintenance of it, sure. You could sell it to them. Let's say that's the most lenient option, right? You get something for it. But during the year itself, you can't, pro you can't profit from it at all. Or then last but not least, is, um, if, is you actually, actually uh, forswear any agricultural work. So here what we have, I think, is the example of Rambam saying, Working the land is possible if it is being done in a way in which it is not recognized as non-ideal, right, not normalized, and also done in a way in which you are not personally benefiting from it. So maybe that's like a pushback on the Heter Mechira. Maybe it should be a Heter Nesina or something like that. Or maybe you could only sell it for exactly as much as you need so you don't go under. Whatever it is. But the point is that there needs to be, it cannot ever be the case that Shemitah is just, the Hetermechir is just saying, oh, regular life goes on ahead, and it's just this technical thing goes on. That's not what's going on. What's going on is it is disturbing, weakening, and upsetting ties of ownership to the land and the license that we think we have with it, such that anything we do with it needs to always be negotiated through these potential partnerships with our neighbors, which then requires us to have positive, potentially productive relationships with the people that we live amidst and around. That is essential. Shemitah is about bringing people back into touch with the land, not based on use, not based, based on exploitation, but rather based in recognizing shared, universal, 
need. The mechira, the sale, is allowed, according to those who allow it, because it is necessary, not to ensure that people get what they need. And that, let's go back to the Pasuk, is the key. As it says, God will have, there will be a, a Sabbath for the land for you. You can eat what the land produces during that year, not that you make, but that the land makes. For you, your servants, your maid servants, your laborers, soshavcha, your residents, right, gertoshav, or maybe even your religious allies, Muslims, monotheists, hagarim imach, who live with you, who live with you. The key in Shemitah is to re-inscribe what it means to live on the land, not to make the land live for you. Lechalav dechal masechas is Rashi, because it says, The poor of your land shall eat. Shemitah makes sure the poor can eat. If Shemitah was followed strictly, frumly, machmirly, in a way in which people starve to death because they don't own land, we missed the point. The Mechira is allowed so that produce, like the capital of the prose duel, can circulate and, pe and people who need food can get it. Could one think that then that the rich can't eat? No. The point is that it's for everybody. It re-equalizes us. Even the non-Jews. And that, I think, is the baked-in element here, too. Shemitah, even though it is a Jewish commandment, was never just about Jews. It was always about making us realize the fact that we are cohabitants. We live on the land with others, we have responsibilities to them and to, and to the earth. And Shemitah means that we can never forget that the land is not just something that we were given for use, but also something we were given for need. And Shemitah refocuses our attention on the ways in which the land is supposed to be producing in a way in which everyone who needs is able to get. And that means not just us to turn everything into a technical issue or a strictly Jewish issue, but it's this human issue. And in its, in its funny way, Heter Mechira doesn't just allow for making those relations beyond our strict community, but in a way incentivizes what it means to have a cooperative management and relation to the earth. Um, I hope in our weeks delving into the environment and Judaism's relationship to ecology, and we've now looked at these more like rarefied technical issues of Shemitah, but I hope we've seen the universal and human aspects at their core. That Shemitah and what it's trying to show us is about reminding us of our basic connection to the earth and the way in which the earth is what is the fundament, right, is the foundation for all human life and to remind us of the fact that we live right next door to everyone else in this earth. It is the earth that holds us all, and we need to, in our turn, hold the earth as well. Um, 
thank you so much for, for this journey into the uh, center of the earth. Uh, I hope everyone uh, can take from this and to continue learning from it. I, I'll put the, the source sheet in the chat right now so you can, uh, so you can learn it on your own time. Um, here you go. Um, I'll put it when I post it on Facebook and YouTube as well. Um, hope you can join us soon for our Haggadah chat. I think we'll actually start that this Thursday instead of our Parsha chat. So bring uh, bring your Haggadahs and we'll just get, we'll pre-game our Seder so we can get the questions flowing. How do you want to confuse children? Let's find out together. Um, Shabbos services is a Shabbos. It's a Shabbos Haggadah, so I have the uh, privilege and the license to do an especially involved Torah, Tvar Torah, but we're going to do it more like this. We're going to actually have source sheets and it'll be a little bit more engaged learning. Uh, and then we'll have a special pre-Passover class on Monday. Keep your eyes peeled for that. And then our final Haggadah chat uh, next Thursday. And then it's Pesach, so woo. Uh, Vigash Koch to everybody. Hope you have a great night.